The Pre-Med Year, session number 301. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome, welcome. If this is your first time joining me here on The Pre-Med Years, thank you for taking some time out of your day to listen. Today is an amazing episode for you to first dip your toes into the pre-med years world. If you have listened for a while, thank you for coming back. You are in for a treat with our guest today. Somebody who back in 1990 became a triple amputee after an accident while he was in college, climbing aboard a train in the early hours as a kid and getting shocked with 11,000 volts from overhead electrical current that powered that train. Woke up in a hospital and later had two legs and one arm amputated. He had then gone on to finish his degree and work and finally found his path to become a physician. Went to UCSF and now is a palliative care physician at UCSF. He has an amazing TED Talk, and he has an incredible New York Times write-up. Our guest today, BJ Miller, his feature in the New York Times back in January of 2018, his feature was titled, One Man's Quest to Change the Way We Die. Go look up his TED Talk. Again, that's BJ Miller TED Talk. Just Google that. You will find it. Listening to BJ and his resolve for how we look at dying, how we look at death, is phenomenal. It's something that I think every pre-med student, which is why he's here on the pre-med years, every one of you should be thinking about as you go through your medical training. Now, coincidentally, as we are releasing this, just this past week, we had the death of Senator John McCain, somebody who was battling terminal brain cancer, and decided to transition his care from trying to treat to changing the goals of his treatment to more comfort care, palliative care, helping him die comfortably, helping whatever time he had left on this planet, making him comfortable instead of aggressively treating the cancer. So it's in the news all the time. Colorado, where I live, recently passed right-to-die laws. Oregon has right-to-die laws. California has right-to-die laws. All of this is important information that you all need to know and be aware of. And B.J. Miller's story is one that you should all know about as well. Let's go ahead and jump in and say hello to B.J. B.J., welcome to the pre-med year. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. When did you realize that medicine was what you were meant to do in this life? Um, You know, it was really my experiences as a patient during college. Uh, Sophomore year, got in a big accident and found myself a patient um, navigating 
healthcare and disability and everything else. And that's really what turned me on to the idea of me being a doctor. I, I really hadn't, I had no lifelong per, you know, a dream of being a doctor, et cetera. It was really just from seeing healthcare from a patient's point of view that got me interested. Yeah, which is not uncommon for a lot of people listening to this, students who, who are in engineering or in, in something else, and they have some sort of incident. And now with with your accident, I, I know from your story, you even grew up in a household with a, a, a patient with a chronic illness, right? With your mom. Yeah. Why do you think there was a difference between you experiencing it as a patient versus experiencing it through your mother as a as a son? Well, it's a good question. I mean, really, you're right. I mean, I had been sort of, I had been bathed in sort of medical and health issues from a from from a very young age. My mom had polio and then post polio syndrome and was progressively disabled from that uh, throughout. She's you know and still is, but throughout all of my life. So, I really, but through her, I. I as is the case very often in disability rights issues and disability advocacy, it's it's really all the, you know, it's the non-medical stuff. You know, the um, there's a tension between, or traditionally or historically, there's a tension between the disabled population and medicine, which is ironic, and we can talk about that. But suffice to say, as growing up, I was I was very turned tuned into disability issues, but in some way that 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 really more set me up to be sort of anti-medical on mm-hmm. some level. And it wasn't really until those issues brought, were brought home for me personally and I was in those shoes uh, that, I, that I got particularly turned on into the, to the healthcare, to the medical issues underlying all this and the medical systems issue underlying all this. So yeah, that's kind of the arc. When you, you talk about systems issues, you talk about advocacy you would probably have a bigger impact on the system. You would probably be a bigger advocate, maybe outside of medicine as a policymaker, as a politician, somebody looking at it from that angle. Did you ever think about going to that side of things? Uh, not really, um, although I am more and more interested in that. I mean, as I, my arc, you know, as an undergraduate, as an art history student, I did the post, I did pre-meds, after college, you know, post-baccalaureate programs and my, you know, so my way in and then the personal issues with myself and my family all, all were coming from a different angle. And I wanted, where I, my first impulse was to, to get involved with patient care and work one-on-one with people and their families. And, and, and medicine was a, a skill set I could learn to be in that position, to be that interface, you know, with individuals. Mm. But then, you know, you're in the practice of medicine for you know a few hours before you realize that 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 sort of beautiful potential, that human potential of doctor and patient really working through something together, gets so gummed up by the systems issues that even if your love is patient care, at some point pretty soon, you're you, you know you're tuned into all the things that make practicing medicine and giving care and receiving care harder than they need to be. So. No, I had never really been interested, certainly not in politics, um, and never saw myself as a policy wonk. But I will say, as time goes on, I'm I'm only more and more interested in those things. As a post student coming from a liberal arts degree, 
what was it like going, am I smart enough to handle all of this science? Like I, was, I didn't know I wanted to do this. Can I handle it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, a couple of things. I mean, one, I was fortunate to be coming from a really good liberal arts education. I was pretty well grounded in essentially how to learn. So I had uh, some confidence in my belt that way. You know, I had I had studied things that scared me before. But I think actually the bigger the bigger thing was having recently just come uh, up against death. I, you know, it really changed my relationship to fear and to the fear of failure. And I really, at that time, in my mid-20s, coming out of my injuries and back into the world, you know, I had sort of a, a, a different confidence. I wasn't, you know, so caught up in comparing myself to others. And I also really wasn't that caught up in any fear around failure. Because in some ways, I'd just been through an enormous failure, a failure, you know, a, a, where my body was really coming apart. And in some level, of, you know, it was a failing of a <laughs> of a bodily system. And to, to see, to come back from that, you just, you know, I, the idea that, you know, I could go into medical school, start, or, or medical training, the, the pre-meds. And yeah, if I found that either I hated it or just really was bad at it, you know, the, the deal I made with myself was to say, oh, well, okay, at that point, you know, then drop it and do something else. But the idea that I might fail at it or might not be good at it had lost its teeth. It was no longer really such a barrier. Were you exploring from the physician side at all, shadowing doctors, or was the the start of your journey really all just from the patient perspective looking at, at moving forward? Mostly mostly from the patient point of view. And I should say family caregiver too, really. I mean, I always, I used to go to a lot of my mom's doctor's appointments too. And I, you know, that is a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. But, but no, mostly from my own experience as a patient was what was driving me and fueling my, my imagination to imagine what it would be like to be a doctor, to be on the other side of the white coat. Um, but I did have the, an opportunity to do a little bit of shadowing with uh, a gentleman in Chicago where I grew up. My best friend's mother was was the head of a board of a hospice, a local hospice. And she put me in touch with a, a man named Mike Priador, who was a medical director then. He's since gone on. He practiced at Northwestern. And I don't know where Dr. Priador is practicing now. He may even be retired. But uh, I spent a day, just I think one day with him, shadowing him, and that was extremely impactful, uh, both around the, the, the realities of practicing medicine and watching someone who had really honed his craft and also a real uh, eye-opener towards uh, towards hospice. So that that was a very helpful experience, but it was a relatively minimal one. A lot of students listening are struggling with their own disabilities, mental health issues. I've had a student on who was legally blind uh, and trying to navigate that process. For you as as a triple amputee, what was the discussion like around whether or not you could quote unquote qualify to become a physician get and get through medical school and meet all the criteria to be a physician? Well, there was sort of an internal conversation that I had to uh, kind of have with myself, which again, like I said, was much to do with just talking myself out of worrying if I failed, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, try it, let's see. Um, uh, and then, you know, bit by bit exploring the pre the pre meds and, 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 but when it came time to apply to med school, uh, you know, 
uh, it was interesting to note, right? I probably applied to 15 schools. I can't remember a lot of schools. And I don't, maybe I got uh, invited for three interviews or four interviews. Um, and you could tell, you know, that people really didn't know how to discuss it. Was it okay to ask me about it? Uh, was it legal to ask me about it? You know, yeah. everyone was really kind of prickly. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, folks weren't sitting on a gazillion examples of other people with disabilities to have gone through medical school to say, oh, well, for sure. Well, we had, you know, X, Y, and Z students and it worked great and no problem. You know, there was no, there was really very little experience to draw from in, with, in terms of the people I was having conversations with anyway. And I certainly didn't know what to expect. You know, the pre-meds are one thing, but, you know, medical school itself is quite another. And, you know, there's a way... A couple things. One is there were a couple schools that were felt relatively enlightened on this issue and and quickly saw that not only was this were my disabilities something that perhaps I could get beyond and get through the training, but in fact that they could be actually a really important part of what would make me potentially a good doctor. Mm. And that was that was the key. And you know, two schools, uh, well, University of Vermont, Dartmouth. And UCSF, I, I re recall having pretty, uh, pretty wonderful conversations with them. Um, but really, I have to say it was, you know, um, coaching I got by my own sort of impulse and my own life's work to make disability not something that I overcome. That's the language that sort of language of the past. Disability is something that you get beyond and then you get back to being a normal person kind of thinking, you know, which, of course, is a farce. You don't get you don't overcome disability. It's a daily deal. Also, that kind of language undermines all the lessons, all the benefits you gain from the experiences of being disabled, which, of course, in healthcare are immediately and directly relevant to patient care. Mm -hmm. So, so I took, re so I was careful to come to the interviews and come to medical training with a pretty good narrative not just as a sales pitch, but for myself to understand what I was doing there and what I was bringing to the table. And part of what I was bringing to the table was having tussled with death, having dealt with all the modifications one makes to uh, accommodate disability in their life and to really learn from it, to explicitly lean into my disability as something, as a, as a teacher, as a, as a means to learning more, not to having a life of less. And so that narrative was really well, it was on my, I, I was wearing that narrative. I believed in it wholeheartedly. That's what got me that far. And there were a few schools who really saw some wisdom in that. Going through medical training, through residency, what was the, the hardest part for you? Whether it was part of uh, having needing accommodations, uh, overcoming, as you say, not to say, um, uh, obstacles in your life or from interacting with physicians with patients who were less accommodating you know i think the the challenge has been less mechanical you know the by virtue of my my disability and just the way things have gone you know i really didn't need all that much accommodation practically speaking through med school as, as it turned out you know really these days at least where i ended up at ucsf you're not doing, you know, I wasn't being asked to stitch up a billion people. And I, I, you know, the surgery rotation, you know, it was easy enough for me to grab a stool and sit while I held the retractor. You know, there was, in the end, 
um, just by the details of my disability, I didn't really need a lot of practical accommodation. But, you know, in terms of answering your question, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge for me is what remains is, is the same is, is still the biggest challenge for me, which is working within a system, bumping up against colleagues in that system who have a worldview that ends up accidentally or otherwise disincluding a lot of people, mm. you know, that we end up. I've always been aware, watching it with my mother, watching it with myself, watching how the medical system responds to people whom it cannot fix. That's a central theme in palliative care. That's a, been a central theme in my life. I've observed it. I've felt it. And so really the distress, the barriers were more of a moral distress that I'm working on behalf of this system who has really good intentions, but by virtue of its training and its structures keeps making life actually harder than it needs to be for its patients and the people working in it. So there was, you know, it, it, this could take the shape in a lot of ways. You know, the medical training, having practically no training around coping, around what it means to live with illness, uh, the philosophy, the spirituality, etc. You know, that was absent my medical training entirely that was stuff that we had to f uh, uh, figure out for ourselves if you ask me that stuff is front and center that's the most yeah. primary that's most basic part of should be the most basic part of being a healthcare worker is having dealt with those kinds of issues adaptation what does it mean to be a human being how do we handle loss how do we deal with things that we can't change or can't control? Those are not exotic issues, although you'd think that from looking at med school curricula. <laughs> um, but, so that so that's my answer to your question. That was and remains still the biggest challenge for me in healthcare. Yeah, and and part of the reason why I wanted to bring you on because I think that that's the the discussion that I want to have because students who are listening to this are at the beginning of their journey, and if we can plant these seeds in their head now then hopefully in the years to come the 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 pendulum starts to swing and it becomes a bigger narrative that's right that's right what do you think when when students go into medical school and they they come out as physicians everything is around how do we treat how do we cure how do we save a life and and there is no discussion around well this is a chronic progressive illness it's a terminal illness there's nothing more we can do. And and in the physician's eyes, a lot of times that, that dictates to them that they're a failure because medical school taught them how to fix people and save people. And now all of a sudden they have a patient who they can't do anything for. Um, although they, there's a lot that they can do, right? And, and that's a, a further discussion that we can have. But but in their mind, they haven't learned these other things. And so they consider the, some, themselves a failure. How do we start to to change their their thinking around that? Well, I think, you know, your podcast is a piece of the answer to that question. Our conversation, um, you know, the f whole entire field of palliative care, you know, there are signs, uh, you know, the conversation you and I are having right now would have been, in my experience, pretty dang exotic 10 years ago, even five years ago. So, you know, there is, I think, a sense of a wider conversation going on, patients and families speaking up, burned out doctors and nurses, et cetera, speaking up. Uh, and I don't think it's a secret from most uh, people that the American healthcare system is an enormous mess in so many ways. So there is 
so there's an, it seems like there's an increased awareness, uh, thanks in part to work like yours. There is a sense of other modes of thinking being welcomed into the mix. You know, when I went to medical school at UCSF, it was a, there was a growing trend that I imagine has continued to grow, which is taking students who didn't have the classic pre-med background, but who had come from various angles and other disciplines and brought a different way of thinking. So there's room for so there's some signs that, uh, for optimism in there, and I think you know I think the biggest one really is that the, the patient population, our population, the human population, is aging, and we're all going to be living with chronic illness, not one or two, but multiple chronic illnesses for a long, long time. More and more of us, in other words, are going to have first and secondhand experiences of what it means to be living in shoes like these. And when that happens, just like it's been the case in my own life, well, that necessarily pries your eyes open to see things a little differently. And just, again, the sheer volume of us who will be living with some degree of disability and illness, I expect is really going to necessarily change, is going to dramatically change this conversation, just working from the demand side of the equation. Short of having students climb on top of a, a commuter train and, and getting electrocuted, how do you how do you open up somebody's eyes? Somebody who comes from a perfect, healthy family, themselves in perfect health, their their parents and grandparents are all living and healthy and no chronic illness. There are plenty of those people out there who are who are seeking to become physicians as well. How how do we expose them so that they can have some empathy towards those who uh, are dying, those who are disabled? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a really good question. Uh, for one, we need to have we, we really one of the major the, the disabled population, specifically those who are more in tune with disabled disability rights, the sort of civil rights issues along the disability side of the equation. This is a group of people who have thought about these things a lot. I don't I'm surprised they're not more in front and center in this conversation. You know, there's uh, because why I go there is you know, let me just take my own example. So, right, I, I'm, you know, four-limbed human being walking around filled with my own anxieties as most younger people are, most people are, about where do I belong, where do I fit in, do I have enough, am I good enough, blah, 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 all this stuff. You know, and here I'm walking around life as a quote-unquote normal person. Then I become disabled. And I watch as the same anxieties in me, it didn't really shift. You know, in some ways my body changed I learn some things by adapting to those changes and then return to some old thoughts with new answers. You know, it's not like I had unless it's not like I didn't suffer before my disability. It's just that I didn't own it in the same way because all everyone was telling me that as a white young man with a able-bodied young man with a good education, I was, you know, I had it all. And yet I was left with all sorts of sufferings internally. And if I had been if I had felt safe enough to look at my own sufferings, even as an able-bodied, well-educated white man, I would have, you know, there, there, were, there were the keys for empathy were already in there. I just had to have this very dramatic thing happen so that essentially I gave myself the, the leeway and others gave me the leeway to say, yeah, you know what? I know some things. I've been through some things. Life is really hard no matter how you slice it. I have more in common with that person living under a bridge than I thought, etc. So I guess my point is most sentient human beings that I've ever met have suffered. 
even the ones who look like they're the luckiest ones in the world. And if we are somehow okay, if we can, if we can admit that, and if we can look at the sources of the, that suffering and deal with them and learn the lessons from them and see that as a commonality we have with all people from all times, you know, the, the lattice work for empathy is in us already. You don't need, to your point, you don't need to lop off limbs or get electrocuted to have that experience. I needed to have those experiences to have the confidence in my own thoughts and feelings. But my own thoughts and feelings really didn't change much. I mean, does, does that make sense? I think yeah. part of the answer is we got to own our pain a little bit. We all have access to it. And if we can do that, then we'll get better at grieving. We'll get better at acknowledging loss. We'll get better at sitting with things we can't change. And therein are the skills that really fuel a really good clinician. And you don't, it doesn't need to be dramatic. Everyone has lost something. Everyone suffers. You just need to own it a little bit. Can you define palliative medicine for somebody who may not be exposed to that term? Yeah, it's a great question. That, 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 that word's a mouthful, and we've yet to figure out a way to define it so that in some memorable way. You know, I mean, there, there are paragraph-long definitions from the World Health Organization and the Center to Advance Palliative Care and CMS, et cetera, that are very useful, but they're long. So, you know, I find myself answering that question, you know, when someone says, well, what is palliative care? And I say, well, I might say, I might say palliative care is an interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life. You know, that, that hits it, you know, the quality of life, subjective realm, uh, the interdisciplinary, that there are multiple ways of thinking that get at this subject. You know, that may be useful, or sometimes I may be even less formal and simply say, my job as a palliative care clinician is help my patients and their families feel as good as possible. And that, that I think, it gets at it. Feel, feeling well, feeling good, and within the context of whatever is possible, in the context of my life. For the, the future orthopedic surgeon out there, the, the future dermatologist out there, how much do they need to know or care about palliative care well you're asking a very biased person uh my <laughs> answer is they have to care about it a lot so as, as long until human beings um you know again every human being i've ever met suffers every human being i've ever met dies you know in, 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 until that until those are no longer the case uh i think any clinician needs to be uh facile at least in the basic tenets of palliative care because uh people may show up in your office as an orthopod maybe show up in your office with a broken ankle or whatever it is and your job is to fix that ankle to the degree possible yeah that's true sure and you can take a very narrow definition of that but if you really really want to be good at your job if you really want to feel good in your job and feel connected to your patients you will be aware of why it's important for that person to have their ankle fixed, not just that it's fixable. People use their ankles. It gets people around, and when people lose the function of their ankle, it's really hard. They've got to readapt. It, ch it, it challenges their identity. It challenges their daily life. So if you're an orthopod, just to stick with the example, uh, I still think if you want to connect with your patients and be as good as possible at your job, you're still going to need to remember why that person wants their ankle fixed in the first place, why it hurts to have it broken, what they would want to do with that fixed ankle. How do you participate in their meaning making? Because every doctor, every clinician, I swear the, the biggest cause 
my bet would be the biggest cause for landing for anyone landing in a doctor's office on some level has to do with them searching for meaning in their life. And sometimes it comes through a body part. Sometimes it comes through a thought. But whatever else, we are all trying to find our way through life and find meaning in our life. And people are going to come to us as clinicians, as doctors in particular, are going to come to us looking for help to fill in those gaps, fill in those blanks. So, you you, you know, it does, it's just not good enough to take a pure techni- technician's view on, on, on the body. Sure, a body is an assemblage of molecules, but if you have no sense of why it's important to have molecules in the first place or why it's sad to lose them, you will be missing out on the much bigger, much more interesting game of health. Why do you think there is or, or is there uh, such a resistance to palliative care? Or, or maybe it's just that it's just still too unknown to newer physicians because they're not exposed to it through training. Well, I think there's a couple answers to that question. I mean, for one, it is getting better. Again, when I did my fellowship 11, 12 years ago, you know, I had to justify my existence all the time uh, as a palliative care clinician, and that's less so. Um, so, you know, the arc is in the right direction. But there's, but you're right, there's still a ton of resistance. I think on some level, uh, clinicians may often say, you know, Pat, what is this palliative care stuff? You know, I care about my patient's well-being. Of course I do. I care about my patient's pain. I care about their family. Of course you do. Are you telling me I don't care about my patients? You know, because that sometimes is the message. Mm-hmm. You know, bring palliative care into the mix um, so we can make sure to care that, that someone's caring about your patient. You can worry about cure and we'll worry about care or something like that. <laughs> you know, that, that – that ain't that ain't good enough. Um, but the truth is, I think most most clinicians, rightfully, are a little bit take a little bit of umbrage at the implication that somehow they need some specialist to come in and care about their patient when they really care about their patient. So that's I think a a, a big piece of the puzzle. I, I think some of us are still really intoxicate, intoxicated with the mode of cure and you know plenty of people go into medicine because that's their rabid to cure to find a a cure for this or that disease and hey i don't want to tone down that impulse that's okay again i still think the, the bigger narrative requires that they think about the person as an individual and their subjective sense of life etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know you don't it, not everyone has to do everything. There's still plenty of room for a disease-focused mentality as long as it's on behalf of the human beings that we're trying to treat. So, I, you know, uh, those are a couple examples or a couple reasons why perhaps why it's still slow to catch on. And I think a third piece is what we're just talking about is, you know, it's, you know, what the heck is palliative care? It's still so hard to define. So it's hard to wrap your arms around. It's kind of this nebulous or vague thing which is also why it often ends up being conflated with hospice and end-of-life care because that people understand. Ah, okay, you help people die. Okay, that, that's, that's more accessible as a, as a thought. Um, so anyway, those are those three theories of why it's slow to take on. To, uh, oh, uh, here's a fourth, here's a fourth, f- fourth example. You know, the dang reimbursement system. <laughs> Under, we undervalue psychology, we undervalue primary care, we undervalue geriatrics, we undervalue palliative care. You know, these fields, and how does it show? Well, you don't make much money in those fields. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this cu- culture, we, you know, we follow the money to see what's valued. 
And if you follow the money in healthcare, you ain't going to get here. Money doesn't necessarily lead you to this very important place. So I, I think that's another piece of this puzzle. What's your sales pitch to that future internal medicine doc who has a patient who would benefit from palliative care that they should take that extra five or 10 minutes to write the consult to, to consult the palliative care specialist? Well, a couple of things. One is, you know, just to back up for a second, the, the field we realize, even if everyone embraces palliative care as, an, as a specialty, there's no way we're going to train enough palliative care clinicians, specialists, to address all the quality of life and coping issues uh, that exist. So the field is finally realizing, yeah, that this stuff needs to be, in some ways, that you know, palliative care is sort of a, a is a as a return in some ways to an, an older way of care, a, a way that family practice docs know very very well, you know. So there's now talk of primary palliative care, which is the basics of basic tenets of palliative care that every clinician should know. Period, and that's why we're trying to bake palliative care early, early on into medical school curricula. And then there's this stuff that's refractory and intractable cases where family dynamics are particularly cutthroat or the pain is particularly difficult to treat, and that's when you really need the subspecialty guys. That's the specialty palliative care. But really, in answer to your question, so for that internist, before they write the palliative care referral. I'd love it if they uh, took some extra training in palliative care principles so they could do it themselves, so they could be a little bit better at symptom management themselves. Perhaps they took a program like Vital Talk or some other communications program where they learn to communicate better and elicit patients' wishes. You know, that, that, that would be my preferred first impulse mm-hmm. so that they don't need to uh, call in a specialist. But, you know, so to take a – but to finally answer your question – you know, when it's time to actually call the palliative care guys, you know, basically ask yourself this question, you know, are, is your patient suffering more than they need to? Are, is your patient struggling despite your best efforts? And if there's someone is still struggling, if someone is still suffering, why not get them more help? And part of that sales pitch is, you know, every time it happens all the time, I watch it all the time, whereas the referring clinician may be a little hesitant at first. And then they see that the patient is happier for the palliative care involvement. And then they see that their job is easier as a palliative care involvement for palliative care's involvement. Palliative care isn't going to poach or steal them away. They're, they're not trying to subsume the primary care role, the referrer's role. In some ways, they're complementing it and making it easier. So in general, we palliative care guys make uh, referring clinicians' lives easier as well as their patients' lives easier. And that's usually the good proof that people need. It seems like medical schools and the curriculum that they have are beholden to the the national boards, whether it's USMLE for MD schools or Comlex for DO schools. How do we convince the medical schools that they need to carve out space for this training? Well, it's super tricky. I've <laughs> been involved a little bit with this in UCSF, not in a while, but you know, it's a, these are just classic turf battles. You know, you've got you only have so many hours of training. And so for those folks, those poor folks charged with putting together medical school school curricula, there's a lot of diplomacy to it. You know, they're being lobbied hard by every specialist to get more time because every specialist knows knows how important their specialty is. You know, so, 
you know, Ira Bayak, who's, you know, early pout of Kerdoc and hero to many, you know, he likes to compare it, contrast, you know, you know, eight weeks of obstetrics, you know, as part of the routine medical school curriculum where, you know, how many patients are going to, how many docs are going to actually ever deliver a baby, you know, to have eight weeks or six weeks, whatever it is of obstetrics as a required part of the curriculum versus, uh, you know, zero for palliative care, you know, oftentimes palliative care is just an elective mm. where all of your patients are going to suffer. All of your patients are going to die. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think part of the problem is the arrogance that medical me- medicine thinks it's already addressing these issues when it's not really addressing these issues. But back to your question, this is just classic turf war. Most people, most medical school curricular designers will acknowledge the importance of palliative care, but then it very often falls apart on the, the sort of turf battles that go along with uh, uh, the limited resource of time for medical school and the, ever, the large and ever-growing uh, body of knowledge that's trying to be wedged in there. Where do you see the the several states that are now enacting laws for right to die we have Oregon California Colorado where i am how do, how yeah. does that fit into the palliative care world yeah very controversial issue um one of which you know extreme passions on both ends and i'm glad you're asking about it there's missing has been a really a more measured conversation about this I mean, and, you know, for, for my money, now living in a state where it's legal, where it was you know, then actually went illegal for a minute, and now it's back to legal again. Um, you know, I'm glad that law exists. I'm glad on behalf of patients I have known, the very few, but the ones, there's not that many of them, but the ones who really, really long to have this option, but, but who didn't. Uh, and I'm aware that a lot of those guys, not only were they fleeing intractable suffering, but more of the point is they saw with death coming soon, no matter what they did, they really saw, uh, being able to, to choose the, their, choose the moment of their death and to do it comfortably as their final act of will, you know, it was a meaningful exercise for them. In other words, it wasn't just a flight from suffering. It was, it was an ascent to something meaningful for them. And I've come to see that for some people, uh, choosing their death, their time, when they leave this planet, within the context of terminal illness, but, you know, the details of when they leave, that is a, that, for many people, that is a very meaningful choice. So I'm I'm glad, and as far as I can tell, you know the uh, aid in dying is a is a small but important piece of palliative care. Now, if you ask a lot of my colleagues, they would tell you that it's anathema to palliative care, and that palliative care does not condone this, et cetera. That that aid in dying is basically a failure to access palliative care. I disagree with that. I, I don't. I, I, I like. I said. I, I see some patients choosing the time of their death in a very thoughtful manner, where it's a meaningful choice for them. And I'm also aware that we in palliative care, we can't salve. We can't um, ease every burden. We can't ease every kind of suffering. And we can't help people create meaning no matter what. There are limitations to what palliative care can do too, even at its best. Uh, so for all these reasons, I have come to see aid in dying as a, as a useful and important piece of, of, of tending to a patient's suffering and meaning making. 
But I also need, know that it is a very small issue proportionally, you know, very few, I guess in Oregon, it's about 0.4% of deaths per year or by aid and dying. So it's a small number of people, but it's a very important symbolic uh, piece of legislation and policy. And I guess that's my final comment on this is that it's one thing to condone this for an individual where you know the person well and you know the situation. It's very difficult to move to the abstract of legislation and, and to craft policy around it, to protect the right people and to allow access for the right people. You know, it's, it's, it's just really, really clunky. I share the disappointment that these laws – there's so much fervor around these laws. Well, where's the fervor around access to palliative care? Why aren't we up in arms that we human beings suffer so much more than we need to? Mm. Why aren't we up in arms that the healthcare system fails us too often? Why aren't we up in arms that we as a country haven't figured out how to finance illness so that people may be left to choose to die because they run out of money or whatever it is? Where is the uproar that we as a society haven't accommodated what it means to be sick and ill and dependent upon each other? You know, so many people invoke aid and dying because they feel like a burden. And to me, that's an indictment of society. Why are we sending signals to people that they're a burden just because they're no longer maximally productive? So in other words, these aid and dying laws are a tip of a very long spear that is with a lot of complex issues. And it, uh, and it does seem a little bit too convenient rather than working on those tough issues to sit instead say, oh, well, sure, you know, you're suffering. We'll help you off the planet. That, that's a little too convenient from a policy point of view. So anyway, I've said a lot that I don't know if that makes sense. There's yeah. some there's, it's pros and cons in this mix. Ultimately, though, I wish these conversations came with a, a, a similar uproar for more access to palliative care. Let's talk about more access. How in a in a country where we are one of the only, if not the only, developed country that doesn't have a government-backed healthcare insurance, how do we how do we fix that in this country? Yeah, well, you know, golly, there are bigger that's <laughs> working on this than mine. You know, it it does seem insane. I mean, we. Never mind the legislative details for a second, but I think as an identity, as a country, we have to decide whether we view health, access to health care as a, as a right or a privilege. And, you know, for my money, it really it veers much more towards what should be a right. That if we consider ourselves to be a civilized population, it isn't okay for us to just step over bodies on our way into our apartment. It isn't okay that people, some people struggle unnecessarily when there's an antidote in a medicine chest uh, in the room next door to which they don't have access, et cetera. I think that's a disgrace. And I don't, I, I, it makes me less uh, proud uh, of my country when we, when we sort of wholesale castigate a certain segment of the population like this. But I also understand that the, the, the details of legislation and policy are complicated and the carrots and sticks that go along with it are complicated. It just doesn't seem to me that the debate is rising to the level that it needs to. And also missing from the, from the debate is the, the, the fact that this, the way we're going and the fee-for-service system that we've got going is absolutely untenable. 
So for whoever's trying to protect it as, as something as that's just to me is an ignorance and a failure in communication and for reporting around this. It is not possible to keep doing what we're doing financially or any other way. I mean, you know, it'd be one thing if we were spending all this money and had the best outcomes in the world. We're spending all this money and having some of the lowest, the worst outcomes on some level, you know, in the developed world. So this this is not a tenable system. Something has to change. But I think at the heart of it is we as a, as a people need to really soul search. Do we want this to be part of the common denominator that we can all rely upon, education and access to health? Or do we want to have maintain a sort of a dog eat dog world? I know where I stand on that. Um, I guess one more comment is I don't I don't think I don't know, but I don't think that uh, moving towards a single payer system is the only solution. I think there are other ways to fix it, and moving towards a value based system makes a lot of sense. But Lord knows, whatever we're doing now is not tenable. What resources, books, movies, whatever it is, are out there for the student to go start exploring palliative care? If if it's not available at their medical school or residency training, wherever it is, where can they get this information on their own? You know, that's a really good question. I should sort of do an inventory of popular culture. Um, I'm sure there's a, a really good answer to your question of what's out there in the art world. I mean, I think the play Wit is helpful. There was a documentary that recently came out on Netflix called End Well, which I uh, mm-hmm. a little, have a little piece of. <laughs> that, that, it, that can at least turn some people on to the end of life, some of the issues that come up at the end of life, which is a way into the subject. Um, Extremis is a sort of ICU-specific documentary also on Netflix that could be helpful. Um, but I think also most, you know, most of the music and art in the world that has ever been often revolves around love and loss, you know, in some ways, at least indirectly, indirectly or tangentially, so much of the reflective human world does contend with, with these issues on some level, if you choose to see it. Um, so we're, you have a chance to marinate in what it means to human being, what it means to lose, what creativity means. You have, you're baked in those kinds of cues if you choose to see them. Um, but more specifically, those, those documentaries I mentioned and, uh, and those films I mentioned, there I'm sure others, and a good thing for me to follow up on the heels of our conversation is actually take a look at popular culture and see what else is out there right now. I'm sure I'm missing something. What's next for you? So I'm about to, we're just finishing up a book uh, my co-author and I, Shoshana Berger, we wrote a book with it's tentatively titled A Beginner's Guide to the End. So it was meant to be it's a practical guidebook for people and their families facing the end of life specifically. And that, that's been a labor of love for the last few years. That should be published and on the shelves uh, next summer probably. So after that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to decide whether to what degree I want to really focus back on the one-on-one work of being a clinician and a doctor versus how much do I really want to still try to um, do battle with the systems issues and the structural and scale issues. 
So I'm thinking about a very a few different things. One would be sort of in the technology space, you know, a, a dating app and a social network, specifically people for who for who are seriously ill. That's one idea. I'm also interested in creating uh, centers, learning centers, sort of libraries where people can go and get good information. We're in this weird time where. There's access to so much information. It's an overload. The hard part is it's not checked information. You can also be exposed to a bunch of bunk stuff and, and lies online, et cetera. So it's really hard to actually be informed. And we are isolated for that. Uh, so setting up basically health libraries where one can go and get good information and perhaps social services uh, like financial counseling, advanced care planning, et cetera, all the non-medical services. The UK has a pretty great example of this called Maggie Centers that I'm very interested in reproducing here or a version of them here. And perhaps or perhaps what I should do is just get back, just, you know, uh, not worry too much about scale and just open my own clinic and just get see how good we can get it uh, at good old palliative care uh, and come what may of the systems issues. So anyway, those are the things I'm banding about right now. We'll see. I've got to think about it a little bit more. But by the time my book rolls out next year, hopefully I will have answered your question and know where I'm going next. You've talked a lot about the system of healthcare, the system of a hospital, colleagues who uh, aren't inclusive as you went through your training, obviously the healthcare system. The pre-med listening to this is going, well, why the heck am I going into this field? Why? Why would you convince somebody, or, or or just reassure them that this is the the right field that they they should be exploring? Because the impulse, the the root basic impulse of human beings working hard to care for each other, um, the working hard to apply their creative energies to making life better for themselves and each other. The, the, the root impulse in medicine is so beautiful, you know, that I, as a physician, even if I'm super healthy, I suffer when those around me are suffering and that I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to help people suffer less because that affects me too. You know, that kind, that, that basic root of medicine is so gorgeous. It needs protecting, you know. Healthcare is not a lost cause. It is frustrating. It is very difficult and it is frustrating in a lot of ways, but it is still also very gorgeous and really essential. So it's sort of like you do, I do think to go into medicine, you do need to have something of an activist's heart these days for all these reasons. But I can't think of any other sort of institutions that mean so well. And that could use really the uh, some really good minds and to make it uh, to and to getting it back on track. So, I guess yeah, you have to have the activist heart. But if you got that, please please come into into this. Please join healthcare. Mm. Please bring your creative energies to this 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 work, which is at its core stunningly gorgeous. All right, there you have it again, Doctor B J Miller, palliative care physician at UC. S.F. Amazing physician, amazing man, trying to change a lot about how we as physicians and we as the public look at death and look at dying. One of my favorite quotes that I heard him say at some point was that we, we are all dying every day. We are all 
dying. That's just the path we are on. And so let's do something about it. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years.